It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Thomas Hill. He's the Chief Executive Officer of Kimray. As the grandson of Kimray's founder, Thomas grew up around Kimray and he has worked at the company for virtually every department, giving him an intimate knowledge of the processes and people involved from start to finish. Thomas manages the family-owned company with a sense of stewardship and heritage. Thomas is also author of the book Recovering Leadership, Musings of an Addict Leader, where he shares his personal story of advancing in leadership at Kimray, spinning out of control, and the long and difficult road of recovery that transformed his life and leadership. He also writes weekly Monday musings on various leadership topics. Thomas currently serves on the board of Salt and Light Leadership Training, and he is vice chair for Hope is Alive Ministry, where he personally mentors a group of men recovering from addiction. Thomas and his wife, Rebecca, both received their degrees from Oklahoma State University, and they've been married more than 30 years and have six children. Thomas Hill, welcome into the corner office. Well, thank you so much, Brant. I'm really, really excited to be here. Ah, it's great to have you here. And so uh, wonderful uh, as uh, we kind of change seasons here and, uh, you know, always kind of like to kind of talk on or touch on really how folks are doing pandemic wise and, you know, how are you doing and how's the family and, and all the folks at the company? Have you guys been, you know, doing well through this? Is there, are there been some specific challenges that you've had as most of us had through this last year and a half? Absolutely. Well, of, of course, Brant, this has been challenging for everybody, and so it's obviously been challenging for us. I'll, although I'll brag on my team a little bit, we very early uh, in the pandemic, in fact, before any of the shutdowns occurred, when when things were just beginning to ramp up, we created a COVID response team that was um, drawn from various areas in our organization, both um, executive level and basically shop floor level, uh, and tasked them with kind of rifling through all the data and monitoring what was going on. And then as a group coming up with recommendations for policy, and we have a phenomenal track record. We have been somewhere between two weeks to even two months ahead of everyone else in terms of, you know, enacting policies, including, you know, deep cleaning and and the way we handle working from home or even working here and, you know, keeping people distanced and keeping people safe. And so we've had, we've had a great track record up until Omicron. We didn't have any transmission here at Kimray. We did have people who got it, but we could find, we could 
calculate where they had gotten it other than here. Omicron's a little different. It's our value is so much higher. We have had some transmission here at Kimray, uh, but luckily the the results of getting that are, seem to be much less. So across the board, I've been very, very pleased. Now I will say Omicron's kicking everybody right now, and, and we've got a <laughs> bunch of people out, which I'm sure is true for every organization. That's a real challenge when you just don't have people showing up for work um, that you had intended to be there and the tasks that they were supposed to get accomplished don't get accomplished. It creates problems for everybody. So we're, we're working on that, struggling with that, but I'm, I'm very, very proud of and pleased with my team. Um, I would say something else about that. We see so much in the media um, about people's responses and reactions to the things that are mandated or the things that are required of them. It's shocking to me how many people have actually become militant over the things they've been asked to do or required to do. And one of the great things about having a cross-functional team and having them represent everybody in the organization and then come back with those recommendations is we've had very little pushback on the policies and the things that we've done. Uh, our, you know, our mantra is we believe everybody's equally and intrinsically valuable and we want to do things that demonstrate and communicate that. And by listening to everyone and letting everybody have a voice in what's going on, we've been able to find a good balance. Now, that doesn't mean we've made everybody happy all the time, right? That's right, never, right. never possible. But I believe that we have reached a really good balance. And because of that, and because of our culture in general, we just haven't had any problems. And that's been, that's been really, really refreshing. Because I know some organizations, that's been a, been a real issue. Well, I think two things you mentioned, just in summary, getting out ahead of it, of course, is important. And that's true with any crisis, right? Mm -hmm. It sounds like you folks are really well prepared. And then communicate, 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 right? There's nothing that falls short, particularly in a larger organization of people just know what's going on, you know, be honest, be open, be forthright and stay out ahead. So congrats on that. And um, can't wait to hear more about Kim Ray and obviously all that's going on. But let's start with you. Um, I know you grew up in a family business. This is third generation, correct? Is that right, Thomas? That is correct. And in terms of, of direct management, I'm the third yeah. uh, third generation direct management. I will say that my great-grandfather was involved in the business financially oh, right. um, in its startup because obviously my granddad, he went to his dad to help out yes, with the, yeah, with the yeah. initial capital, but That's was never involved in in the company itself or in management. So we kind of, kind of say we're third generation. So, so when you grew up, dad was running the show or was granddad still running it at the time? Well, my parents were really, really young when they had me. So my dad actually, when I was one, went to Vietnam with the Marines. He was a RIO operator in a F4 Phantom. And um, then he came back and went to school. I got to go through that with him. I actually went to preschool at Oklahoma State University. So I've been orange for a long time. And, uh, and then we came to Oklahoma City when I was about six years old. And he went to work for Kimray as a bench engineer, okay. basically designing products and, uh, and kind of worked his way up from there. But by the time I was in middle school and high school, he was the de facto we didn't have, they didn't call him CEO. That term, that, that title didn't start being used at Kimray until really just a dozen years ago. But um, he was functionally the CEO and, and ran Kimray for about 30 years. Brothers and sisters? I have a sister and a brother. Okay. Um, and uh, my sister's a uh, professional uh, home 
maker and, and child rear. She has eight kids oh, wow. <laughs> and does a great, <laughs> great a job thing. of that. And she's now getting her kids married off and having grandkids. And, and then I also have a brother who's not involved in the business. Not involved, right. And, and, uh, what about your wife? Has she, uh, been uh, also focused on the home or has she been involved in the business? Company? Yeah, she, she started out as a educator. She actually got a degree in, uh, foreign languages, Spanish particularly, and then um, was interestingly enough was, you know, so often, I, this is something I really find interesting. There's so many people out there kind of trying to figure out how they're going to uh, mimic what they've seen other people do. And, and unfortunately, um, if you've never read the book Black Swan, I highly encourage people to read that because it really just exposes the myth that if you mimic what everybody else is doing, you'll get the same results because there's just circumstances that don't repeat themselves. People are in the right place at the right time. And uh, my wife was in the right place at the right time. In Oklahoma, we passed a bill that um, mandated elementary education, uh, uh, foreign language education in elementary school. And so everybody was scrambling to find people both to do that and they didn't have curriculum. And so my wife got the opportunity to write the curriculum for one of the large school systems here in central Oklahoma and then test teach it and then teach the teachers. And if we hadn't started having kids, I'm sure she would be an administrator, if not the superintendent of schools for all of Oklahoma by now, because she's very, very organized, very, uh, you know, brilliant. But she decided that she wanted to stay home with our kids. We have six. Oh, and wow. so we're okay. about to graduate our last one from high school. And oh, gosh. I don't know what we do then because we haven't done anything <laughs> that didn't revolve around kids' schedules for the last, you know, 27 years. So oh, I'm imagine. not sure what you do now. Yeah. So uh, entire life in Oklahoma City, is that where you grew up then? And, you know, around Yeah, functionally, city? yes. And good student in school. How did you enjoy your <laughs> Well, um, yeah, I can be a good student if I want to be. Um, <laughs> in the courses you liked, right, Thomas? <laughs> exactly. I, I got bored very quickly in most of my mm. classes in school until I got into my upper level engineering classes. And so I have the distinction of having been thrown out of two universities oh. and took seven <laughs> years to get an engineering degree. But I did get married in the middle of that, ran a foundry for a while and you know had a full time job for most of that. So I, I have some excuses, but, uh, right, right. yeah, people, people, you know, they, they, you know, I want you to come talk to my kid about how important it is to get an education. They assume that I did the standard, <laughs> went to school, made straight A's and I did not, that was not you me. You got to look at it with a John and say, are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure? Cause, <laughs> cause I'm going to tell him, you, you know, the circular route may work just fine. <laughs> so involved in sports and other activities in school, what were your distractions? Um, minorly, um, uh-huh. I went to a high school that required you to participate in sports. And so I did, but that was never my, my primary thing. I have been a nerd since I was a little kid. Um, I like to take things apart, put them back together. Mm-hmm. I like to build things and create things and figure things out. So hence the engineering. Degree. Yeah. In, in, <laughs> in school. And when I was young, you would probably find me at a workbench building a model or oh, creating cool. something or dismantling something. That was really, really what I was about. Did they have you working at the, at Kim Ray early on? Did you do stuff like during high school or work in the warehouse or anything like that? Or that I did my first, well, I started working at Kim Ray when I was probably seven years old, but we don't talk about that. Cause I'm not sure that the 
the federal government is okay with that. Um, but my dad would give us jobs, you know, to do. Um, we had we had a, a separate company that manufactured the the world's first cardiac output computer, which my father invented. And uh, it was the old fashioned circuit cards. Everything was through hole, you know, resistors and transistors and stuff. And after those were all soldered up, somebody had to clip all the leads off the back of those circuit cards. So I, that was my job for a while. I would come into Kimray and clip those off. But my first real job at Kimray uh, was when I turned 16. Still true. You have to be 16 to work here. And uh, I got a job uh, in assembly, which was mm-hmm. assembling our product. And I worked for a, a guy named Charlie Talon, uh, who has uh, unfortunately passed away, but he was a wonderful guy. Uh, and he knew my grandfather, had worked Long-term for my grandfather, boy. knew my dad. Yeah. First day of work, first day of work. Um, I'm there. Of course, this is before the days of onboarding or anything. You got a job. They just threw you out on the shop floor and said, here's the tool. <laughs> right. You know, it looks like this, you know, catch yeah. up. Yeah. And so I'm working about mid middle of the morning. Charlie's making his rounds and Charlie comes up to me and he, and he says, you know, I, I know who you are. I know, I know what your name is. And I want you to know that that's not gonna make any difference out here. In fact, I expect you to work harder and better than yeah. anybody else. You, you owe your granddad that. That was the first thing he said. The second thing he said was stay away from my daughter. She was working that summer also. And, uh, and I got to tell you, I took both of those. I, I took his advice on both of those issues and I'm, and I'm really glad I did. Um, he taught me early on that it, even if I could have an advantage because of who I was, I didn't really want that. I didn't want to have that following me around that I had taken advantage of my name. I needed to be able to, to, I needed people to believe that I had worked as hard as they had and that I knew how to do the job. And that's really something that has followed me ever since. And I can say even today, I stay as, as a CEO, I still stay very um, connected to the data. So I know what's going on in the shop floor. Obviously, I'm not controlling it. I'm not making a lot of those decisions. I'm certainly not doing that work. But I can walk out on the shop floor and have a conversation with somebody and I know what they're talking about. I know what they're facing. I know, you know, what the metrics are that they're working against. And, uh, and I think that's been a, a big benefit to me in my management. Yeah. Awesome. So was uh, OSU a, a foregone conclusion as far as college was concerned? Well, it was for me. That was part of the problem. My parents sent me to a, a little um, evangelical university up mm-hmm. in um, Chicago. I don't know if, if anybody's ever heard of Wheaton College in, oh, sure. in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I loved Chicago, but I wasn't enamored with Wheaton. They were pretty restrictive. We didn't get along on a lot of uh, a lot of areas. And so um, I did fine. I, I made decent grades and, and was doing fine in school, but they asked me not to come back. So um, <laughs> I don't think I fit their culture at the time. And then I got the opportunity to go to Oklahoma State and um, found out that the freedom that I was missing in Chicago um, was available to me uh, un- in an unlimited amount. And I used that freedom and failed out of school. So Okay. All right. And, and, uh, came back a couple of different times or did you go? I did. Yeah. You know, they make you go get a, they make you go get a, a couple of credit hours someplace else. And then you can re-enroll and I re-enrolled and then I got married in the middle of all that and had to work and go to school part-time and, but I managed to manage to finish. And you got your mechanical engineering. Yes. Now you didn't go right back to Kimray, as I understand it, right? You worked a, f- a few years outside. Tell us a little bit about kind of that decision because, you know, it, it can go either way. Uh, a lot of folks, particularly in the early years, second, third generation, typically tend to go in fairly early and stay their entire life. Was that purposeful on your side to 
Well, yeah, it, it's actually a misnomer. I, I managed a foundry, but Kimray owned the foundry. Okay. So okay. I was still technically working for Kimray, was yeah. actually reporting to my father ultimately, but I was in another another town managing a foundry that we had purchased. And um, I think that was a good experience. Um, nobody there knew me. Right. Uh, I didn't have any history there, which made me realize, you know, the difference between using the power of your name and using, you know, real leadership. Sure. Um, so that was, I think that was helpful, uh, but not quite out from underneath the umbrella of our, of our family company. Right. Right. And then and that was the Red Anvil group. Is that correct? That no, correct? no, 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 no. That, that, yeah, that's a little later, a little later okay. in, in the, in the story. Um, yeah. I had worked here for 25 years and then, um, managed to get myself fired from my family company. Um, okay. So, I mean, we can go into that story. I don't know. I don't know what your, what your you know, well, path sounds, here is, but you brought uh, it up, Thomas. So I, that, that's very interesting. How did that come about? Well, um, you know, the, the shortest way to tell the story is um, growing up and, and I want to be really, really clear with your listeners that I love and respect my grandfather and my father um, but they were unique men. My grandfather uh, was a genius. He was um, brilliant he was in ways that, right? say that again. He was an inventor, correct? He was. Um, he the vast majority of the of the product that Kimry built the reputation on, he created, wow. um, held 44 patents, wow. um, was just unbelievably brilliant. And I spoke his language. And so he and I got along fine, but he was not an easy man um, to work for or to live with. He was very exacting and, and not very sociable. Um, he had a, today we would say he had a very low EQ. Um, right. and it didn't bother me. I didn't think right. my father was similar, is similar. My father's a Marine. He's, you know, firstborn type a very, very competitive, very successful, very, very brilliant. And so I grew up surrounded by these men who, I never saw them uncertain or afraid. You know, in my family, we fixed everything. There was a solution to everything. Mm -hmm. And we stepped into other people's problems and fixed them. And of course, running, a, watching them run the company, you know, they would have those conversations around the dinner table. And so I got this sense very early when I was very, very young, that that's what it meant to be a man. That's what it meant to be successful. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that's not actually true about anybody, right? Nobody is certain all the time. Nobody is unafraid. Everybody has fears and concerns and doubts and doesn't know sometimes. And, and so I felt that way, but I thought I wasn't supposed to feel that way. Mm -hmm. um, and then there were, there were a series of childhood traumas, none of them um, the kind you read about in the newspaper, death of a friend and you know, deaths in the family. And, and we didn't deal with trauma very well. We just kind of brushed everything under the rug. And yeah, yeah. all of that created um, kind of a, a disconnect for me that, that really created an internal kind of a pain. And I learned early on to deal with that pain through behaviors, the number one of which was performance. Um, when I did things, people praised me and I got attention and that felt good, made me feel better. So I basically became my therapist says I was a human doing instead of a human being. And that was kind of my primary thing. But then I also, I, I, I tend towards compulsive behaviors. I don't check doors over and over again, but I, I do things and I can't stop. Like I'm, I collect. So, you know, I started collecting guns and the next thing I know I have a hundred guns, which nobody needs a hundred guns. You know, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. 
So I had all these behaviors and the older I got, all that just keeps piling up. I'm not dealing with any of it. I'm not processing any of it. And so in 2012, um, things had gotten to the point where I was so, the, the, the internal problems and the internal conflicts were so weighty and all of those things are functionally addictive behaviors. And the, and the great thing about addiction is it works. The addictive behaviors, whether you're drinking or doing things or taking drugs or having sex, it doesn't really matter. The addictive behavior, you're doing that to make yourself feel better. And initially that works, but then yeah. it doesn't work as well. And you have to do more. And then it doesn't work and you have to do more. And that's the same thing, no matter what addiction. So I got to the point where I was just looking for, I just was constantly doing things to make myself feel normal. And that wasn't my job. And I got to the point where I wasn't really doing my job and I was doing a bunch of other things. And my family came to me and said, um, this is a problem and Mm -hmm. we need you to step aside. And so that happened on a Friday morning uh, in 2012. And, um, that was my whole identity, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, it, I know there are people listening to me right now who this will resonate with. I didn't know who I was if I wasn't That's running Kimray yeah. because that was what I always wanted. If you'd asked me when I was in first grade, I would have told you I want to be an engineer and I want to run Kimray. And I had achieved that. It didn't make me happy. It didn't fulfill me. I had a lot of issues, but I didn't know who I was if I wasn't the person running Kimray. And that existential crisis almost ended my life on that Friday. And so we made the decision. I say we, they tell me I was participating in that decision. I don't remember whether I did or not, but we made the decision that I needed to get some help. And so I actually went to inpatient. I went to a rehab center for 67 days where I learned uh, that my whole identity was based on the wrong thing. I, and instead of my value and my identity being what I did and what I accomplished, I learned that my value is intrinsic and equal to everybody else's and that my identity is, is internal to me. It's not about what I do or what I accomplish. I, I am who I am and doing things is great and helpful. And sometimes it's how you pay the bills, but it's not my identity. And so I came back from that um, not thinking I would be able to come back to Kim Ray. And so that's when I started Red Anvil. I did start another company. Um, I, you know, the, the issue's never been not know, you know, not having something to do. I, right, I, right. I never worried about having something to do or being able to make money or, or generate wealth or create products or anything. I, you know, that's, that's really kind of the easy part. Um, so I did that. And about a year after I left, uh, the board had come in, they'd cleaned a bunch of stuff up. And they started thinking about the future of Kimry, and they decided that it was in Kimry's best interest to have somebody in the family managing the company. And so they asked me if I'd be willing to talk about coming back. Yeah. And um, we had that conversation. Interestingly enough, I was not sure I, I would come back because it's kind of like a drug addict going back to the drug house they used to live in. You know, you want to be really careful about repeating the, you know, the, the circumstances and the surroundings and the patterns and but we had some conversations and, and I was healthy and doing well. And, um, and so they did, they, they brought me back. Now I came back as the vice president in manufacturing, which was a job I had had about 15 years before. And I was reporting to someone I hired while I was running the company, which was a little, you know, it was an opportunity to, to practice humility and make sure that I kind of knew who I was. And then over a period of, of a couple of years, I, I worked my way back to, they installed me as CEO. 
Well, interesting. So who stepped in back as president? Was it your uh, father or who, who took over that? Yeah, my Just father right? stepped back in and, and yeah. actually at that point in time assumed a, a CEO title and um, replaced the board um, with a with a different board because that was also part of the problem. Um, and just did a lot of housekeeping. And, and then when I came back, starting out as vice president of manufacturing, um, after a while, they moved me to COO uh, to, to basically support my father in his CEO role because he has MS and it was beginning more difficult for him to function. And then they, when he decided to step down the board, the board was going to do a, a nationwide search. They really thought seriously about just bringing somebody else in to be CEO. Uh, but after a while, they, they came to the conclusion that it was in the company's best interest to, to try me out. And so far that has worked. Um, and, and I'm very pleased that they made that yeah. decision. But I yeah. don't take that for granted that, you know, I got this opportunity. So, so when you think about now coming back, and again, thank you for your candor. Um, you know, a, a very difficult time, I'm sure, for you, as well as the family and the company as you went through that transition. Yes. What's different now as you come back and you take a look at, obviously, kind of your day-to-day and, you know, kind of the, you know, the, the arc of your leadership. Have you, have you modified your role in a way? And do you behave differently as it relates to how... You know, you work with your folks and, and uh, the people in the, in the, in the organization and, and broadly. And, you know, tell us a little bit about that. How, how have you kind of maintained, I guess, the stay in that different groove than you were in before? Well, um, yes. The answer to that is yes. Um, if you have a couple of days, we can work all the way through all of that. Um, <laughs> it, it's a lot of material. We'll, we'll abbreviate it. I, I did actually write a book about that, oh. both that experience and exactly that, the difference yeah. between the way things were before and the way things were after my experience in recovery. I would say, Brant, the number- What's the name of the book, Thomas? Uh, the name of the book is Recovering Leadership. Recovering Leadership. Fantastic. By Thomas Hill III. Yeah, um, available on Amazon as far as I know. But uh, great, terrific. Well, nice plug. But I, I'm definitely going to go take a look at it because this is a, a wonderful story. But yeah, give us the highlights. You know what we're yeah. So we're I, I would say the number one number one thing is is kind of what we've already touched on before. I believed that my value was associated with my accomplishment, with right. with what I did, what I created. If I believe that about myself, then if you worked for me, Brant, what would I believe about you? Yeah. Same thing, right? That yeah, your exactly. value is associated with your accomplishment. Well, I'm just going to ask you a question. I think you already know the answer. Do you think I thought you accomplished more than I did? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm the head of the <laughs> company. Couldn't, nobody couldn't works work. more than I. I don't right. sleep. I'm yeah. type A. Yeah. I'm obsessive compulsive. Yeah. You know, nobody, yeah. I, I'm the smartest person in the room, right? And sure. so, which is also something I learned is not true. But, you know, so <laughs> even though I would never have said it, what was true about my belief system is I believed that I was more valuable than other people. Now, the irony of that is I was also very insecure about that value. That was part of my problem is I was constantly having to one up myself, right? I couldn't even enjoy what I accomplished because I was always worried about, well, what's the next thing I'm going to do to keep this going? But that, that created an environment at Camray because here's the reality. The culture of an organization is an organic result of the beliefs of the organization. Organizations have beliefs. Beliefs are what drive us to behave the way we behave since organizations behave corporately, as it were. They have beliefs. The beliefs of an organization are predominantly influenced by the leadership. Not entirely, but it's really hard to overcome. So as the leader, 
If I believe that value is based in performance and accomplishment, then that makes it a competition. So I created a competitive environment where everybody is competing for value, which is very unhealthy for human beings. That's not the way we were designed to be. And so even though we were a good company and I was a good boss, people liked me. I wasn't mean or, or problematic. There's still this underlying current that you're only worth what you do. And if somebody else is doing more, they're worth more than you are. They're more valuable than you are. And that's very caustic. That's very hard on people. So I would say that that's one of the biggest things that changed is I learned the truth, which is my value and everybody else's is intrinsic and equal because that's my belief. That's now Kim Ray's core belief. And we behave that way. We, now that doesn't mean everybody's the same, right? We have different responsibilities. We have different skills and different experiences, but you're not at Kimra, you're not competing for your value. We value everyone. We treat everyone with respect, equally with respect. And that was not true before. So that's, that's a big, a big component of it. The other thing is I grew up in a command and control environment I'm, I'm, my dad is a Marine, right? In the military, yeah. military's <laughs> command and control. There's no if, right. buts, or ands. Yeah, they're not asking <laughs> for your input when you're on the rank and file. You know, That's they're telling right. you what to do. And I was, while I was a nice person, I was very command and control. I believed I had all the answers. I believed that mm-hmm. the best thing for Kimray was for everybody just to do what I told them to do and do the thing. And besides, it, it increased my value if I came up with all the ideas. Of course. And, and of course, you're the smartest guy in the room and you have to. Right. right? There's pressure for that as well. Yeah. After after all of this, after recovery, I, I realized that in reality that there are a lot of really great ideas out there. We have all of these people at Kimray. If we've hired good people and if they're talented and if we're treating them well and they feel valued and respected and included and cared for, then the stuff they bring to the table is going to be phenomenal. And so... The things that have happened at Kimray over the last, you know, six to seven years under my, you know, second round of being the, the, the CEO or the head of the organization, we, our, our accomplishments have outrun anything we got done beforehand. I mean, my, you know, whatever I do bring to the table and I do bring stuff to the table, it's magnified a hundred times by all of the input and all of the um, extra work that gets done by all these people who now feel like they have, that they're included, they have real input. I'm really looking to them to come up, to come up with solutions and to, and to solve things. And really the only thing it requires of me is the humility to acknowledge that someone else's method or way of getting something done can be just as good as mine. It may not be the same as mine. I may have done it a different way. I may it may have looked a little different if I'd been the one doing it, but their way is just as valid and, and in fact, oftentimes is better in the long run. And so yeah, yeah. having that carry through the organization and that has gotten us through the downturns. We've been, since I took over, we've been through two significant downturns. We've been through COVID. Um, in our industry, every downturn is followed by growth, which I think is actually harder than managing the downturn. Mm-hmm. Um We've been through those and not only have we, we're not surviving through those, we're thriving through those. We come out stronger every time. Um, we just acquired our largest di- distributor, um, which is a huge acquisition for Kim Ray and, and makes uh, our bottom line much, much healthier, uh, regardless of what business level we're at. So we're accomplishing things now we would never have gotten done under my leadership before. Yeah. Yeah. 
Canada, that's great. And and how do you um, you know, know knowing a little bit about recovery? Uh, it's a it's a family disease, as 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 one knows, mm-hmm. and uh, lots of it around in my family. How, how do you keep on track? Do, do do you have things that you go back and do on a regular basis that remind you of those principles? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I am I'm a process addict, and so like every addict, I'm I'm not not an addict. I'm just in recovery, and so. Um, that's always there. It's always a possibility for me to, to repeat behaviors and do those kind of things. So I do several things. One, I, I still have a therapist. Um, I started seeing a ther- my therapist when I got out of inpatient treatment and have been seeing the same therapist ever since. And I intend to keep seeing a therapist until, I guess, until I die. I don't know why I would ever stop. Um, I'm also involved in a recovery community. We have a group here in Oklahoma called Hope is Alive. I happen to be on their board, um, but even before I was on their board, I started leading a discipleship group in one of the houses. It's a sober living um, facilities. We have 22 houses, but I go to one of them uh, once a week and and participate in a discipleship meeting. And that's kind of my recovery. That's my meeting. That's my recovery community. Those are the guys that I can talk to and, and call and they call me and um, and so that's really, really for me. And then, you know, a lot of personal behaviors, uh, a strong believer in meditation and quiet time and structuring my life so that I don't get uh, too busy. Busyness is, is an enemy. Um, I get too busy, then I forget to take care of myself and, and do, my, uh, do my things. Um, so there's quite a, quite a bit going on there. But, you know, it's no more no more complicated than keeping your body fed, no more complicated right. than, you know, right. people manage to get haircuts and, you know, clip their fingernails and brush their teeth and go to the bathroom every day. I just added a couple of other things to that. Yeah. And I do those maintaining, every day. Maintaining conscious contact. Right? Exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. Tell us a little bit more about Kim Ray. We, we haven't talked about what the company does. We've talked a little bit about the history. Give us a little thumbnail sketch. I know you're privately owned and you don't want to share numbers and so forth, but you know, tell us about the, the breadth and width of the company and how many employees and, and you know, kind of the things that you folks do every day. Well, our mission statement at Kimray is to make a difference in the lives of the people that we serve. Mm-hmm. And, and I tell you that first because it's really important that people understand that while we do a lot of things at Kimray, um, that's not who we are. So what we do at Kimray is we manufacture a line of controls for the production of oil and gas. So if anybody has driven by a well site somewhere or seen a well site, you're liable to have noticed some horizontal or vertical tanks or vessels, and there's piping going all over the place. And then there are valves. We make those valves and we make level controls and thermostats and um, a lot of different, all the, all the controls, mechanical, pneumatic, and electric controls that are necessary for, for uh, processing the fluids that come out of the ground at a well site. Um, a a lot of our equipment's on separators and and things like that. So that's what we do. Um, all of our manufacturing is here in Oklahoma city where I am. We have uh, about 325,000 square foot under roof and 16 different buildings separated by three city streets spread over 22 acres because we've grown since 1951. (laughs) We've been just kind of spreading out in this location and, um, we have about 700 employees right now. About 600 of them are here in Oklahoma, and then 100 of them are spread around at our distribution locations 
we are represented by physical locations pretty much anywhere there's an oil and gas play in the United States. And then we're represented by other companies in all the foreign locations where there's oil and gas. We do sell internationally. Um, and so our product, I used to have a, I used to bet people and I probably still would, um, nobody ever won the bet that if you can find an operating well site in North America that doesn't have a Kimry product on it, I'll buy you a steak dinner. (laughs) We're very, very much, um, have the lion's share of the products that we make. Um, partially because Garmin invented the piloted back pressure regulator, which is, which is kind of the piloted regulator is kind of one of our, uh, the thing we're kind of known for. Um, nobody does it better than we do. And we've been doing it longer than anybody else has. So we're really kind of the de facto standard in the industry. In fact, we're the one everybody copies, right? So most of the competitors, most of the people that compete with us are really just selling our product that they copied. Right international operations as well, or, or just distribution, just distribution. Yeah. 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 And actually, um, we played with trying to do that, that ourselves and, um, playing the international game is its own thing. I mean, it's a, it's a mess. And, uh, so we went with company, we now have uh, agreements with companies that have stateside presence so that we actually sell our product in the States and they export it, which is much easier than, directly exporting yourself. So talk a little bit about culture and, you know, maybe help us understand you, you shared your mission statement, which is, which is fabulous. And, and, you know, but again, 700 people, you're, you're far in a field, you've got new people coming in all the time, you know, CEO's role really is about, you know, communicating that culture. How do you do that? You know, with, when you're not able to, you know, kind of have that water cooler discussion with the folks down the hall, uh, are there town meetings? Do you have communications? Right, right. Do folks get training? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, well, two things, Brant. Kudos to you for for pointing out that a CEO, one of a CEO's primary roles, maybe not the you know the primary, or the only primary, but certainly one of a CEO's primary roles is communicating um, lots of things, but communicating culture. Uh, and I, I think that there, I see a lot of evidence that, that some CEOs forget that that's their job. Um, and we see the result of that in the organizations and in the things that happen. So, um, that, that is a good question. How do you do that when you have a lot of people? How do you do that when you're spread around? Um, I spend a lot of time, uh, directly communicating. So we have a really uh, good system of, uh, we do monthly meetings, corporate-wide monthly meetings. Um, here in Oklahoma City, pre-pandemic, those were in person. So it took five meetings to put all of our people in a room, but we would do the same meeting five times. And that way, everybody got to see management and me and got to hear the same thing. We now record those and send those out as a recording, which is not quite as effective, but it's better than, better than not doing it at all. Um, and then I spend a lot of time on the shop floor and in the, in various offices. And in fact, Monday and Tuesday, I was in West Texas visiting locations there and a week I'll be in a couple of other locations. And so uh, at least once a year, I'm in all of our locations as are other executives. Um, but here's the thing. My, my job is to communicate uh, right. but I can't reach all 700 of our people all the time. Right. So what, what my, primary job is, is to make sure I have completely communicated and continually communicate that to the, to my direct reports. 
and then make it part of their responsibility. Um, not just, hey, this is something you should be doing, but really part of their job description, part of their evaluation, that they're then in turn communicating that to their down chain. And, and what we find is that um, no matter how much I communicate, we start losing it around the, the, the manager level and supervisor on the shop floor level if the, the other officers and then the vice presidents and then the directors aren't working just as hard as I am at communicating. And so really, I focus more on making sure that I'm consistently and constantly working with the other executives and encouraging them to, to move forward. That, that's, really, that's really where I spend a lot of my time. Yeah, makes good sense. What, what do you look for when you're making bets and the people you invest in that hire at Kimberley? Well, um, of course, you know, it varies depending upon what level of, of position we're trying to fill when we're hiring people for the shop floor. Um, you know, they get interviewed by a supervisor or, or a, a pool of supervisors, and we kind of have a short list of things that we're looking for. But you can afford to try them out, right? You can afford to put them on the floor and see if they work out. And, and typically what we find is if they're not going to work out, they self-select out. We don't typically have to get rid of them. Um, but when I'm hiring for an executive level position or even a, uh, even a mid-level management position, we spend a lot of time with them. I, I think that a lot of times people shortchange the interview process. It, it's obviously difficult to learn about somebody in a in a meeting, right? In a <laughs> right, right. Hour long or 45 minute long. Right. And you're asking right. them, you know, some standard questions and they've read a bunch of stuff on the internet about how they should answer those questions. And, you know, the internet's taken all the mystery out of everything, by the way, but, um, <laughs> used to be, if you could retain data and I'm, that's one of the things I'm really good at. I'm a data junkie. If you could retain data, you could be Superman, right? I mean, you know, nobody could whip me at a bar. I knew everything. Now everybody can just look it up on their phone. It's no fun at all. <laughs> right. They're looking at their, under the table. They got Google. Exactly. But um, <laughs> so we try to spend more time with them. We try to get them in front of multiple people. And then those people get back together and kind of compare notes and, and compare their feelings. But the other thing is, interestingly enough, a lot of times um, when I talk to other executives and I talk to other people about how they're doing, you know, they're interviewing, they spend most of their time trying to learn about the other person, which I understand, but there's going to be a limited amount that you can do. We spend a lot of time in the interview process, making sure the person we're interviewing understands us because I'm just going to look them in the eye and say, is this a place you think you can thrive? Because we do have some fairly specific things that are important to us at Kimray. And if they're not going to be important to you, you're not going to work out here. Um, and so I've, we have found that being very clear about our expectations and who we are, what our culture looks like, and what we expect from our people in terms of their behavior, um, not just their job performance, but their behavior, how they treat one another, how they're going to you know, who they're going to be at work. If we're very clear about that, some people kind of go, yeah, this is probably not the job for me. And the other people, you see them light up, right? I mean, like people respond to what they're hearing and, and what they're, what they're experiencing. And so we're looking for that spark to, to light up in them when you say certain things. And, and that lets us know that that's something that resonates with them. And if that's the case, then they're probably going to work out pretty well for us. Yeah. 
Yeah, fantastic. Well, Thomas, we're just about out of time and you've been certainly very, very generous today. We always ask one last question though, and that's like, you know, what kind of career and life advice would you give someone who maybe has their eyes on the corner office? Maybe they've grown up in a family business and they're not sure about what the next steps are. And, you know, maybe they're mid-career, maybe they're taking a look at a variety of different things that they could do or could not do. Well, what would you tell them about, you know, career direction and uh, obviously the types of things they should be thinking about if they really want to get into that C-suite. Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, I would say um, really search yourself and and be sure that you want to be in executive leadership. Um, it's difficult. I think a lot of people that aren't in executive leadership imagine that it's a, uh, you know, a, a position where you have a lot of freedom and you have a lot of power and you get to make all the choices. And what I tell people is I just have a lot more people who get to tell me what to do now than I ever did before. <laughs> and not for and, everyone. and yeah. you find that you don't have nearly as much freedom as you think you do because it kind of the bucks, all the bucks stop here. And if, if something isn't right, you know, it's yours uh, to make sure that it, that it gets taken care of. So it, it, it is a burden, um, one that I that I gladly bear and enjoy, but not everybody is is wired for this. And so, first and foremost, I, I would ask people to make sure that that's really what they want. Um, I think our society has lied to us and told us if we're not constantly moving up, there's something wrong with us. And there's nothing wrong with finding a place where your skill set and your desires, in terms of what you want to to put into something, are kind of matched up well. And, and you and it works for you. There's nothing wrong with staying there and being content and, and doing that well and being the best that whatever that is. So everybody doesn't have to climb the ladder all the time. But if you choose, if you do decide that, then I would say the most important thing for leadership is humility. And that's unfortunately the thing that seems to be the, the most lacking in a lot of leaders. And so any opportunity you have to learn what true humility looks like, I would find a humble leader that's successful. And I would ask if you could just sit at their feet, so to speak, if you could be mentored by them. And I would ask them, you know, how they make the decisions they make and how they decide what to do with people that are problematic. And because really anybody who's got you know, some intelligence and some education can solve some problems. You know, anybody can create a strategic plan. Anybody can, you know, create a budget. Anybody can, you know, say, hey, we're going to go over here and take over this industry. That's not really the, the magic in leadership. The magic in leadership is when all the things that don't go right, how do you, how do you deal with those? And all the people who, while they are talented and wonderful and you need them, they are also messy and complicated and, and don't always show up in the ways that you need them to show up. And how are you going to deal with that? And typically I have found that, that humility and respect and care for other people is much more productive than all the other things that we often see. But those are very difficult things to, to develop. Those are uh, difficult qualities to to have become kind of your natural mode that you operate in. I'm still working and struggling on that. And I think I always will. Something I always want to be able to get better at. So that would be my advice. Fantastic. Well, Thomas Hill, CEO at Kimray, thank you so very much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.